Hey everybody, it's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're here with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we take your favorite animals and rate them out of 10 in effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts, but we do a lot of research and try our best to make sure we're presenting information from trustworthy sources. That's right. As always, I have so many sources for mine. <laughs> I feel like you do too. You sort were of. so deep in the papers for this one. I was. <laughs> you I got were. a little too deep and had to back up a bit. <laughs> I know you were. You got lost a little. We had to pull you up. You were in too deep. <laughs> you were like back in the archives. Mm-hmm. You were like digging back through like the dusty tomes <laughs> of amphibian research. I do have a really quick little update to our last episode we did together. Just a follow up, a little something. Uh, you talked about the alligator gar. I did. My mom listened. And she said that it brought back memories of fishing with her dad, my grandfather, when she was a kid. And that she had a bit of a curse where every time she went, this was in Mississippi, by mm-hmm, the way, my mm-hmm. family's from Mississippi. And every time they went out fishing, uh, she would catch an alligator gar every time without fail. And that it ended up getting very, very frustrating because they are very large fish that are difficult to catch. And then there's not a lot you can do with them because you mentioned that they have those really tough scales and they're really difficult to prepare if you don't have the right tools. But if you get past them. Yeah, but they would rather just have something that's easier to eat, right? See, she says curse. I say blessing. See, I would have felt like that. I would have been so excited to see this really cool fish, but they were trying to like fish for food. <laughs> so like, <laughs> they would pull up a gar and be like, this is useless to me. They were not pleased with the frequency with which they caught alligator gar. See, I fish on average once or twice a decade. But <laughs> <laughs> that is one thing that I really think you have room to spec into in your dad's skill tree. Like, you can definitely allocate some. There's potential crossover with the grilling tree. So That's true. Yeah. See, you could be that guy. You could go out on the river, catch a fish, bring it back, and then grill that mm-hmm, fish. That mm-hmm. could be you. Yep, yep, yep. Unless it's an alligator gar. I have all these points because I refuse to put them in lawn care. <laughs> <laughs> More than the base minimum. So, Christian, you go first this week. Yes. The animal I'm bringing this week is the rough-skinned newt. I'm so excited for this one. Yes, scientific name, Tarika granulosa. Biology nerds are screaming right now. Are they? They're like, yeah! (laughs) People who are like really into evolutionary biology. Yeah. It's an icon. It's good stuff. It is. This species was submitted by Travis Kurtz and Mary Hildebrand via email. Thank you, folks. I believe Travis was a guest in a previous episode. So long ago. That request (laughs) was so deep in our email inbox. (laughs) You know how I found it? Did you search it? Spreadsheet. Oh, yeah, it was in the spreadsheet. (laughs) Spreadsheet saved the day again. (laughs) I'll be getting my information from Animal Diversity Web, as well as a few articles that I will cite as they come up. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. So first, let's talk about what a newt is. Please. They're amphibians. Not lizards. Not lizards. They have the form of a lizard, I would say. Yeah. But they are amphibians. So newts, are are they related to salamanders? Are they the same thing as a salamander? All newts are salamanders. Okay. So they are a subset of salamanders. Got it. But the, the opposite is not true. Not all salamanders are newts. Gotcha. I feel like with any salamander, a person who did not know might reasonably look at one and think that is just a wet lizard. Yeah, with some odd features, I would Mm -hmm. say. 
that most lizards don't have. Right. But they have that like long body and the four legs and... Their heads and snouts, I guess, are more rounded. Mm-hmm. Less angular. You can see the frog influence yeah. in the face. Very really. round. Yes. The eyes protrude on a lot of the species. Yeah, they got bulgy bug eyes. Yeah. And some newts have uh, what look like rib cage markings down the length of the... There was a term for this, but I forgot it. They're like bumpy almost. This newt does not have that, but it does have skin bumps or granules where its species name comes from and its common name. Oh, the rough skin (laughs) part. You said they're granules? Yes. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's like a textured sort of skin? Mm -hmm. Bumpy. Coloration-wise, they're like a dark brown black on the top, mm-hmm. and on the underside, it's a lighter color that ranges from like yellow to orange, so very high contrast from, oh, okay. from the top and bottom. Oh, sure. Like light on the bottom and mm-hmm. dark on the top. And they have a long tail. That's the best part of a newt, I think. Yeah. They have that long, slithery-looking tail. So just to describe the, the, the words we're using, salamanders are amphibians that have tails as adults. Because lots of frogs start off with tails in their tadpole stage, but right. will grow out of it eventually. But And newts are often used to describe a salamander that lives mostly on land. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Because there sure... are a lot of salamanders that like stay in the water their whole right. lives. Right. Which I'm sure there are exceptions to this, and this is just a, a, a rough guideline. Because <laughs> yeah. anyone can name whatever they want, basically, right? <laughs> now, where these newts can be found are the Pacific coast of North America, from central California to southeast Alaska. Okay, so like the top half of the Pacific coast. Right. But not as far north as like the, the far reaches of like the, the Arctic Circle, for example. Oh, sure, sure. I, I would imagine an amphibian would have a rough time <laughs> yeah, living yeah. that far north anyway. <laughs> they spend most of their time on land, as we talked about with the name Newt, uh, but they must return to the water for breeding. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they're not completely committed yep. to the whole land thing. Correct. So you'll find them in the water when they're young or when they're breeding. And in terms of size, these things in length range from 12.7 to 21.6 centimeters or 5 to 8 inches oh, long. Oh, little. Yeah. Which I think a lot of salamanders are in this ballpark. That seems normal. Uh, there are a couple that are very, very big out there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, like the hellbender. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. I think China has a giant salamander, too, mm-hmm. that's like multiple feet long. Right. They belong to the taxonomic family Salamandridae. I think is a cool name. Salamandra Day. Yes. Ooh, that is cool. <laughs> Which is the family of the true salamanders and newts. The like... true salamanders, <laughs> whatever. Uh, there's other families of what we call salamanders. For example, the axolotl belongs to a different one. I didn't know there was gatekeeping amongst the salamander <laughs> community, but... In this family, another notable relative I could find was the fire salamanders, which are like black and yellow. It's not a D and D monster. It probably is. You know what? There's a there's a D and D monster called the Salamander. That's okay. like a fire elemental. It like evolves into the fire. It's like the larval form of the fire snake. I was gonna say, wasn't this the inspiration for the D and D fire snake? Was the inspiration for something that I wrote into our D and D episode? Yes. I don't want to spoil too much, <laughs> um, but it it factored into it. Yeah. So jumping right into our first category, which is effectiveness, and this describes physical traits and attributes, things that can help them out with what they're trying to do. Built-in Claws, stuff. wings, lasers, that sort of thing. Yeah, lasers. <laughs> A common feature. <laughs> I'm giving an 8 out of 10. Only an 8? That feels pretty good. That is, I mean, yeah, it's good. It's just not, knowing what I know about this sure. creature, I'm, I'm a little surprised it didn't go higher, but 
So, of course, the first thing I'm going to be talking about is their poison. Yes, please. They are poisonous. So much of and, that. And I am using that correctly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Did you check? <laughs> yes. And that um, this poison applies when things try to eat it rather than being delivered via something like a bite or a sting, which we would refer to as venom. And this type of poison is called tetrodotoxin, or sometimes referred to as TTX. Now, this is the same kind of poison as the blue-ringed octopus that we talked about in episode 97. A good tie-in. Yes, but the difference there is the octopus did deliver it via um, a bite. Okay, so this is kind of a multi-purpose venom, or multi-purpose toxin, I suppose. We see this toxin a lot in aquatic animals. Oh, okay. Yes. But this is not a fully aquatic animal, though. Right. They've brought the TTX onto the land (laughs) right so to talk about that toxin real quick it's a type of neurotoxin Um, it blocks sodium channels which affects the nervous system functioning correctly okay i'm not digging any further into that i was having a mild panic attack as you were like (laughs) starting to get into sodium gates and stuff i'm like i cannot follow you down this path Uh, but just understand it causes problems for your nervous system so like your brain sending the electrical signals to things like your muscles and your organs to tell it what to do these aren't just things that you actively have to think about doing like moving your arms and legs but also things like breathing right so if your brain can't (laughs) tell your lungs to breathe then they won't correct Uh, symptoms of this toxin include numbness gastrointestinal symptoms paralysis and respiratory failure and of course which can lead to death that's all the bad ones yeah Uh, another thing you might have heard about this toxin with is pufferfish yeah. being eaten, uh, called fugu in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's like, you can eat that. Well, I didn't dig too deep into it, but it has to be prepared in a very specific way. That's people... that's kind of what I've heard about pufferfish, yeah. is that like you have to get it done like super, super, super professionally. Yes. And that method has nothing to do with being cooked or heating. Really? Because this toxin is not affected by heat. It's not affected by yeah. heat. So you can't cook out this toxin. Really? <laughs> huh. So what, what it likely is, and again, I didn't dig too deep into the pufferfish side, but it's likely that certain parts of the body contain the toxin. Okay, so you have to kind of like remove the gland or whatever it is that produces it. Whereas with the newt, it's pretty much in the skin, in its flesh, it's all over the place. It's pervasive. It's (laughs) a full body experience. Yeah. There is no antidote for this toxin. Oh, no. Yeah. I think I remember you telling me about that with the blue ringed octopus, that it's super bad news. Yeah, and I think what we we said last time, and again this time, is that you just kind of have to receive supportive care until it passes through the system, Mm. out through the urine. And I'm getting that information from the article Tetrodotoxin Toxicity by Koti Poyina Kong and Warrington from a 2021 publication. I got that from the National Library of Medicine. Nice. Yeah. Very good. That's recent stuff. Mm -hmm. This is new. So there's an arms race going on with these newts and other TTX-resistant predators. So when you say arms race. Yes. Not racing arms or who can grow arms the best. (laughs) In which case the newt would be winning. (laughs) Because... The most common predator they're fighting against with this is the common garter snake. They do have way more arms than snakes. Yes. (laughs) An undefined amount more. (laughs) Is that because you can't define by zero? Yeah. (laughs) So what's going... That was probably the geekiest joke you've ever told on this whole podcast. I did it. So what's going on there is it's a two-way natural selection evolution brawl. So the newts have this poison... 
the snakes have been developing resistance to the poison. <laughs> snakes try to eat the newts. Yeah. So what's happening is they are naturally selecting newts that are higher in toxicity and then snakes who have higher resistance. For generations and generations yes. and generations. <laughs> Which is just like amplifying yeah. both effects. So what's happening is, um, you know, some snakes will have a resistance that is far greater than any amount of toxin they will ever come into contact with, while some newts will have this level of toxicity that could kill dozens of people. Right, in like one dose. <laughs> yeah. It's ridiculous because, like you said, these things are only like five inches long, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you would think, oh, they're so little, they would never need a poison that toxic. Right. But then here comes the snake with a constitution modifier of two billion. <laughs> it's like, I can survive a nuclear bomb in my throat. Right. But what's interesting about all this is it's not fully understood whether the newts are getting their toxicity from their diet, like pufferfish, or if it's produced by bacteria within the newts themselves, like the blue-ringed octopus. Because hmm. those are the two ways that we know of that right. these animals can get this kind of toxin. I know that with, like you talked about with the um, golden poison frog, yes. like with poison dart frogs in general, mm -hmm. they get their toxin through their diet so that when you have poison dart frogs that are kept in captivity, they're mm -hmm. not poisonous. You can handle them all day long and it's no big deal because they're not eating the things that they would be eating in the wild right. that make them toxic. But since these newts are amphibians, I would guess that they'd be more similar to the frogs. You would think. So the average toxicity of these newts, that averages lower in areas without those resistant predators. And so I'm talking about Alaska and British Columbia, basically, oh, that area. Because the, the garter snake territory doesn't extend that far north. But even within those populations and across short geographic distances, there's a wide variety of toxicity. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like for the garter snake, just eat something else. <laughs> like, you're doing too much. You know what I mean? Like, just eat something that's not... Well, the thing is, though, if you're the only thing that can eat the newts, that means you don't have as much estate. competition. Yeah, right? that's true. Now, the newts themselves do resist their own poison. That's helpful. <laughs> but they, they even have that resistance in populations that are non-toxic themselves. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So it's just something like a default setting, well, I so guess? So all of this suggests there's some sort of cost to the poison. Mm. So like it's making sense not to produce it if it's not needed. So it's likely a combination of diet and something that it's m metabolizing on its own, maybe with a, a bacteria. That, that makes sense. Yeah. And I'm getting that information from the article Toxicity and Population Structure of the Rough-Skinned Newt, Tarika Granulosa, Outside the Range of an Arms Race with Resistant Predators by Haig et al. 2016 and Ecol Evol, also found on National Library of Medicine. Nice. So yeah, very interesting with the poison. You know evolutionary arms races are like the funniest thing in the world. So mm. you're like, I don't know what it is that's so funny about <laughs> it to me, but just the fact that you see animals with like absolutely ludicrous stats just because they have some sort of beef with one other specific animal and they're just in this trapped in this back and forth. Mm -hmm. Endlessly funny to me. Yep. Yep. And so with a person that eats these whether on purpose or otherwise. <laughs> don't I don't suggest it. Yeah. Because like I mentioned, the, your only option is just to be in intensive care so that they can help you. Breathe. Yeah. yeah. As you go through those symptoms until it passes. Mm. Um, it seems like if they catch it quickly, like within an hour of you ingesting it, they might 
go the route of pumping your stomach or activated charcoal, that kind of stuff. Sure. Now, is it ingesting only or like if you touch it, would you get poisoned from it? I know with like poison dart frogs, you could get affected by the poison just by touching it. So that's a different kind of poison. Oh, okay. But with this one, it's primarily ingestion. Okay. With the octopus, it's because of its bite. Um, that's a, it's, in, it's in the saliva of the octopus. Okay. But the, the newt doesn't have a mechanism to put it into like an open wound or something. Sure. But I think I saw handling instructions to be careful with that kind of thing. Like right. if something has come in contact with a newt, try not to get it in open wounds or something. For sure. And also, it's, it's rude to mess with them. <laughs> so like, just leave them alone in general. Right. Another thing it has is an aromatic deterrence. It apparently has an acrid smell to deter predators. Oh, stinky. <laughs> stinky newt. And that's from the Oregon State University's Oregon Coast 101 species list. That's cool. Uh, it's worth noting the most toxic populations of these are found in Oregon. Really? Yes. What's going on in Oregon? What's up? I'm assuming that's where the most resistant snakes Tons are. Tons of snakes. <laughs> A snake country. Yeah. And I want to talk about their life cycle, as salamanders are a little interesting in that respect. For sure. Eggs are laid in water. Mm -hmm. And the the female will lay those eggs like within underwater vegetation to try and hide it. And those eggs are suspended in a gelatinous substance. Um, think boba tea. If I you don't want. wanna. <laughs> we had boba tea the other day. Well, like we ordered boba tea and Christian had some and I ordered some for my son, but he didn't like it. So Christian offered me some of his boba tea and I was like, you know, I've tried it in the past and I didn't like it, but maybe it'll be different this time. Maybe this time I'll <laughs> like it. And I did. And instantly I had an out of body experience. As soon as one of those little tapioca pearls slipped up that straw, I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> I hate this. I love it personally. I know you do. <laughs> It's it's a sensory experience for me mm. that I really don't vibe with. Yeah, it's pretty uh, unique, I would say. It is. So those eggs hatch and grow into their larva form, and that's when they have gills. So think axolotl. You know, that, that phase of the axolotl life cycle that has gills and mm -hmm. is underwater. Well, for the axolotl, they are uh, neotenous. Mm. They retain their juvenile physical form for their entire life. Mm -hmm. So the axolotl can, under like super specific circumstances, can metamorphose into what you would think of as an adult form where it looks like a normal salamander, mm -hmm. but it's really unhealthy for them. So like most larval salamanders essentially look like an axolotl. Yeah. They have those big feathery gills on the side. I wonder if that's a, a result of their extremely specific natural environment. They do have like a very specific environment, yeah. but I don't think they're the only salamander that is like that. Sure. I was thinking with this with this one, you know, it has a very big range, right. um, whereas the, the axolotl is only like what one pond or lake yeah. or something. It used to be one lake in Mexico uh -huh. that has now since been developed into where now it's kind of like a series of canals. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, Xochimilco is gotcha. what, the, what the lake is called. Gotcha. Um, and they'll eventually become an adult and return to the water to breed. Now our second category is ingenuity. Uh, this talks about uh, intelligence, things, sure. things they do that are smart. Clever stuff. I was going to give a six out of ten. That's not bad. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is what's called the unkin reflex. I've never heard this word in my life. I'm, unkin? Yes. U-N-K-E-N. -E I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Just say it confidently. <laughs> so what this is, is when they're threatened, they'll raise their head and tail to expose the brighter color of its underside. Okay. And then a lot of time the tail curls when it does that. Oh. It's pretty cute, actually. 
it's the opposite effect it wants, but that's on humans, I suppose. Right. To us, it's cute because they're tiny. I feel like I've seen them depicted in this position a lot in artwork. Yeah. And then my only other thing with Ingenuity was navigation. Uh, studies seem to indicate they can use celestial cues, olfaction, and darkened areas caused by vegetation at the edges of water bodies to navigate. Whoa. Yeah. Celestial cues? Yeah. They're so little. And they're like, <laughs> oh, just imagine a little salamander that's only five inches long looking up at the stars, <laughs> admiring the big, wide open, starry sky. Oh, man. <laughs> We're it's all so in the pond, but some of us are looking <laughs> to the stars. <laughs> That's a fan art prompt for all the artists out there. A salamander looking up at the stars. <laughs> Final category is aesthetics. This one is how cute or cool do they look? I'll give it a 9 out of 10. It's a cute one. Yeah. I think the color scheme is interesting. The only thing I would take off is probably i imagine that texture is not pleasant to touch mm. <laughs> i've never touched one before yeah probably never will also i've seen salamanders that have incredible beautiful bright colors and markings mm -hmm. i'm thinking of like yellow spotted salamanders or like red you know what are they called um tiger salamanders maybe? maybe where they have like these beautiful colors and this is not it it's worth noting this is not the only toxic salamander Oh, no. So, <laughs> yeah, no, not It at is all. probably, you know, the most toxic ones are probably the most toxic salamanders there are, mm -hmm. but there are others. Right. Um, but you're talking about several magnitudes less. <laughs> <laughs> this one's a standout yeah. by far. Yeah. Not that you should go around eating random salamanders. For science. It's raw and take, whole. <laughs> take notes <laughs> about whether you die or not when you, you eat would, them. Some of the stories about people that have died from these things were like, it was like a bet situation. Oh, my God. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> Everybody stop doing that. Yeah. And I will say, as far as amphibians go, these are top tier. They have a better form than frogs. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> no, I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I don't, maybe it's the familiarity thing where, like, we're so familiar with lizards from them being everywhere that mm -hmm. like, we like the lizard form. But I'm with you. I think salamanders are cute. <laughs> and I think they're cute. Salamanders are, on average, cuter than frogs. There is a chance, by the way, that in our upcoming trip to Monterey, mm -hmm. while we stop in the Redwood Forest between the airport and Monterey, we will be in their southernmost part of their range. I'm going to look for them. We're going <laughs> to flip some logs. <laughs> if there was ever a time to keep our toddler on the shortest leash possible. <laughs> I'm going to start making little spinach molds of salamander shaped spinach things so that he associates that form with not tasting good oh <laughs> that's not fair to spinach all right we want him to like spinach that's true <laughs> and call nintendo to get that stuff they use on their cartridges oh my gosh oh the that like bitter coating that they put on the switch cartridges <laughs> that's all ingest of course don't lick your switch cartridges it tastes really bad also ingest that i don't plan on training my son to not eat salamanders <laughs> So conservation is the last thing I usually talk about. These things are of least concern as of the IUCN Red List assessed in 2015. One of their threats is the pet trade, unfortunately. There's prettier salamanders that you can Well, keep. also don't take random salamanders. Yeah, no, don't just like pick up <laughs> random wild animals and bring them home. Yeah. Don't do that. So yeah, that is the rough skin newt. Nice. What a spectacular animal. It is. Thank you, babe. Hoping we see one. I, me too. That would be really exciting. I've only ever seen one wild salamander in my life. We will probably need assistance in the ID, though, because there are other 
newts that look very similar. Yeah, I will be taking pictures of any <laughs> creature that I see. Um, would love ID assistance because we we did see a wild salamander in in a stream in Georgia. We did, and I didn't know what that was. I had to take a picture and like send it to people and ask them what it was. <laughs> <laughs> I did check that salamander was probably in the other family of salamanders. So it wasn't a true salamander. No, sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I guess I haven't seen a salamander then. I've <laughs> <laughs> been gaslit. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Thanks, babe. Let's take a quick break to hear from our friends on the MaxFun Network, and then we'll get to my animal. All right. Hi, I'm Janet Varney, and just like you, I survived high school. And we're not alone. On my podcast, The JV Club, I invite some of my friends to share the highs and lows of their teen years, like moments with Aisha Tyler. But when you're a kid, the stakes are just pretty low. Go to school, try not to get in trouble, get laid. Jamila Jamil. I watched television probably every waking hour during that time and I was shit-faced on medicine. And Dave Holmes. We talked and talked and then everybody left. It was just us two and I was like, I love you. Learn how you too can be a functioning adult after the drama and heartbreak of high school. Every week on the JV Club with Janet Varney. Find it on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a judgment-free show. Hi, I'm Biz, host of One Bad Mother. Whether you're a parent or just know kids exist in the world, join us each week as we honestly share what it's like to be a parent. I signed my stepson up for a camp that is actually in another state. I feel really stupid, and I don't think we're going to get the money back. And then he found out that the car manual is a book about cars. So now he's reading our car manual. We have... So join us each week as we judge less, laugh more, and remind you that you are doing a great job. Download One Bad Mother on MaximumFun.org, and yes, there will be swears. All right, Ellen, what have you got for us this week? This week, I'm talking about the heavily requested, nay, demanded (laughs) pumpkin toadlet. Oh, boy. There's not one species name, scientific name for the pumpkin toadlet, because there are many species of pumpkin toadlet. Mm. They belong to the genus Brachycephalus. Ooh. Yeah, so that's their genus. And most of my information is based on the species Rotenbergae, Pitanga, and Ephippium. So those are kind of the three most common species. So most of my information is about them, but those aren't the only pumpkin toadlets. There's lots of them. This species was uh, submitted by Katie Schultz via email, as well as in what I would consider a frenzy in our Discord by Bren Everfolly, Jacob Schick, and Crispity Bits in our Discord. <laughs> awesome. Yes, uh, who basically had pitchforks and torches at my door demanding that we talk <laughs> about the pumpkin toadlet. Because they're very, they're in the news right now. And I'll tell you why in just a second. Okay. But before I do, let's talk about what a pumpkin toadlet is. They are so, so small. Their average size is about 15 millimeters long, which is less than half an inch. Yeah. You could fit one on your fingernail. Mm-hmm. That sounds uh, right. They are so small. <laughs> they're little bitty. That's full grown. Yeah, that's adult size. Wow. Yes, they're incredibly small. They're one of the smallest frogs in the world. Mm. There are other members of their genus that are smaller. They're called like flea frogs. Oh. Yeah, um, which are like a little smaller, but you basically can't get much smaller than this as a frog. 
they are found in the Atlantic Forest in Brazil. So this is a rainforest along the Atlantic coast in Brazil, kind of on the southern side, where they live on the ground among the leaf litter. So these Mm. aren't necessarily tree frogs. A lot of frogs you'll find up in the trees. These are ground-dwelling frogs. Well, it's because climbing, like, even a sapling is like climbing a mountain for something that small. I know, they're just so little. (laughs) So they are frogs, and just to kind of zoom out and talk about frogs a little bit, frogs and toads make up the order Anura within the class Amphibia. There are over 7,000 known species of frogs and toads. Colloquially, in English, we kind of use the word toad to refer to frogs that are mostly terrestrial. They're Hmm. usually, like, warty. They have that bumpy skin. Um, They're usually a little bit more dry and terrestrial than what we don't call toads, I guess. (laughs) Um, But just kind of like how the newts are part of the salamander group, Mm. toads are part of the frog set. So toad is a subset of frog. All toads are frogs. Not all frogs are toads. But it doesn't matter anyway, because there is no taxonomic classification of toad. It's purely vibe-based. And then toadlet just means small toad. I was wondering. I don't think I'd ever heard this used like in such a formal manner. Right. And I also feel like I've only ever heard the word toadlet used to refer to like a baby toad. Mm. But this is like just what they call all of them. It's just it's just a little toad. Just a little guy. These toadlets are terrestrial, but they're not warty. They don't have those sort of like dry, brown, bumpy skin that we think of when we think of like the toad's on our back porch and stuff. Mm-hmm. So they're not quite like that. The American Museum of Natural History lists 38 species of the genus Brachycephalus, of which 34 of them are pumpkin toadlets. So not this whole genus, but like most of it. One species in the genus Brachycephalus is called Brachycephalus dark side. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was named in 2017. Oh. And it was, I know, like people, I really, I'm such a big fan of how taxonomists have been like getting funky with scientific names. Oh, they're very, very fun. I'm excited about it. Well, I figured this one was going to be in the 20 teens or in the 1980s. Not in the prequel era, you don't think? (laughs) Yes. But here's the thing. It's named for this black connective tissue underneath the skin on its back. Oh. Um, so like the skin on its back, you can see it has a sort of black layer underneath it, making its back look darker than the rest of its skin. But here's the thing. It was named after Pink Floyd's album Dark Side of the Moon, not the Star Wars Dark Side, which I know for you and me, that's where we went. Like yeah. We immediately heard Dark Side and thought, by Star itself. Wars. Yes. Yeah. Star Wars. But no, it's Pink Floyd, the dark side of the moon. Okay. Also, if the word brachycephalus sounds familiar, um, yes. it is a word that comes from the Greek meaning short head. And brachycephalic is a word that is often used to describe dogs that have those snub noses. Oh. It's like pugs, bulldogs, stuff like that. If they have that kind of like snubby nose that's called a brachycephalic dog okay yeah so if you've heard that word before that's probably where you've heard it so that kind of gives you an intro to this uh pumpkin toadlet let's get into our ratings uh first up is effectiveness this is kind of why they've been in the news a lot recently they're having a moment definitely uh i'm giving them a four really out of ten for Uh effectiveness first of all The reason they've been 
on everybody's mind recently uh-huh. is that they're so bad at hopping. They're so bad at oh, it. Oh, no. They're getting they're dunked on. Really bad at hopping. <laughs> yes, they're being... It is a like a, a smear campaign. <laughs> they're getting publicly dragged every day. And that is specifically because of this one article. This was an article by Catherine J. Wu in The Atlantic. This was published last month, so June of 2022. Mm-hmm. And the title is, A Frog So Small It Could Not Frog. Oh, this is a this is a beautiful article. It's so pleasantly written. It is yes, dunking on this frog for being really bad at everything, <laughs> but in a very affectionate and gentle way, I think. It is with a way that just oozes love for the frog. I just wanted to read a quick little excerpt from the article because Catherine Wu just does an excellent job of describing this frog's struggles with hopping. Catherine writes, when these little frogs jump, they leap spectacularly, their airborne bodies imbued with all hope. Their bodies twist and invert, tumbling, cartwheeling, Esner told me, Esner being the scientist she interviewed for this Mm -hmm. article. Some somersaulting head over heels, others pirouetting in an almost rotisserie-esque spin. (laughs) In their final descent, the toadlets sometimes reach for a handhold, but the effort is for naught. They crash to the ground, arms akimbo, landing not on their forelimbs with grace, but on their butt, their belly, their back, their head, and bouncing beach ball defeat. (laughs) So what's happening is they jump... Like Mm. any frog does. It's kind of the frog thing. So they get the jumping part right. They're like, yeah, got it. Excellent. I'm airborne. And then once they're in the air, all sense leaves their body. They're like, oh, no, I didn't think I'd get this far. I don't know what to do now. I didn't plan this far ahead. And then they just kind of flail, (laughs) then plop down on the ground in whatever (laughs) position they end up in. So have no ability to right themselves. No aim. It's just... It is a leap of faith. They only read the first part of the instruction manual. They did. (laughs) Chris is judging them for not reading all of the instructions. (laughs) So the issue that's happening here is that pumpkin toadlets, like I mentioned, are extremely tiny. Mm -hmm. That means that everything in their body is drastically scaled down to be very, very tiny, including what's called their vestibular system. So the vestibular system is the system in the inner ear that regulates balance, just like in humans, right? Mm -hmm. So if you've ever had um, an ear infection, that can cause vertigo. This happened to me really recently. Just a few months ago, I had an infection in my inner ear that gave me vertigo for days. I would get really dizzy every time I tried to stand up. And that's because the system of canals inside of your ear is full of this fluid And when you tilt your head, the fluid level moves around. It tilts with your head. So think of the the bubble inside of a bubble level. Yeah. Um, So a tool that you would use with a bubble in it to tell you whether something is lined up level with the ground or not, because the bubble's always going to be pointing straight up, no matter what. And this this is all in the presence of gravity. Yes. Yes, (laughs) That's true. (laughs) But so, you know, inside of the vestibular system, inside of the ear canals are these little tiny hairs. Mm -hmm. And when you tilt your head, the fluid flows and 
activates those hairs to tell your brain what position your head is at. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's kind of how your vestibular system works. But the problem is that with these little frogs, they're so, so, so tiny that the ear canals are so narrow that it's really difficult for the fluid to flow. So the frogs just have like no sense of balance whatsoever. So it really (laughs) works against them in a major way where like they just, once they're up in the air, they just can't get a sense of like, where they are or where to go next like they're just completely disoriented when they're in the air so they they can't write themselves to land correctly keep this in mind keep this whole like their inner ear system is a disaster that will come back up later because this is not the only way that it harms them okay it is very interesting though because like we we talk a lot about anatomy that works at a small scale but if you scale it up it doesn't work anymore like for example the breathing system of insects right but this is the opposite the opposite (laughs) yeah being a lot smaller has really harmed them in this way I'm going to come back to this whole inner ear thing in a couple minutes, but I want to move on to another thing about them, which is their toxicity. Okay. Yeah. Pumpkin toadlets, like many brightly colored frogs, are poisonous. In fact, it's the same toxin as the rough-skinned newt. Okay. Uh, They just don't have as high of a concentration of it. Um, So their skin does contain tetrodotoxin, but not enough to harm a human through skin contact. It is a similar thing where like it has to either get in through an open wound or Mm -hmm. get into your mouth or something like that. So it has to be like introduced to your system some way. If you just handle it with your hand, you're probably going to be fine. Just wash your hand afterwards. Really, you handling them is more dangerous to the frog than it is to you, right? Because like amphibians have to absorb a lot of moisture and air through their skin. So when you introduce the oils and the dirt from your hand onto their skin, it can be really harmful for any amphibian. So Mm -hmm. in general, you know, try not to touch amphibians with your bare hands um, because you're more likely to harm them, especially if you have lotion or something on your hands. It can be really bad for them. But it is enough that most things really don't eat them because they're poisonous. And not only are they poisonous, but they advertise the fact that they're poisonous by being this bright, I mean, super high, like saturation as high as it can go, bright orange, which is Mm -hmm. where they get the name pumpkin toadlet because they are that pumpkin bright orange. Yeah, which is an example of aposematism. Mm. They are, it is an aposematic uh, display. They're bright orange to indicate that they are poisonous, kind of like how a spicy potato chip bag will usually have like red flames and stuff on it to indicate (laughs) that it is spicy. So it only counts if other people know you're eating something spicy. Right. You got to like tell everybody, be like, hey guys, look how spicy this chip is that I'm eating. I'm very tough and cool. This is nothing. This is nothing. I could eat the whole bag of these. (laughs) That's what you sound like. Sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the last thing I wanted to talk about for effectiveness, and I honestly can't, I don't know whether this is a plus or a minus to their effectiveness, but it's cool, so I'm going to talk about it, Mm -hmm. is that they do have glowing bones. So the bones of the pumpkin toadlets Mm -hmm. fluoresce. Hmm. So we've talked about biofluorescence before with the wombat. That was a while ago. It was. So just to recap, what happens is they absorb high-frequency UV light. So UV light is at a very, very high frequency. When things are biofluorescent, or fluorescent, I should say, they absorb the high-frequency UV light and then rebroadcast it. Basically, they emit it back, but at a lower frequency, which usually brings that light into a range that we can actually see. Mm-hmm. What this means is that when something is fluorescent, if you shine a UV light on it, it will glow. 
because it's emitting the UV light as light that we can see in our visual range. Wombat fur fluoresces for some reason. (laughs) Uh, But what's really unusual for the pumpkin toadlet is that it's not on its skin. It's on its bones. So when you shine a UV light on a pumpkin toadlet, its skeleton glows through its skin. I was going to say, it's probably small enough where you can see it. Yeah, you can just see its skeleton glowing through its skin. It's like the radiant armor from Breath of the Wild. You know what I'm talking about? Like that armor set that like you make with luminous stones that has like a glowing skeleton on it. Uh It's like that. (laughs) (laughs) Which is like, why? (laughs) Why are you doing that? That's scary and spooky. It is very spooky. (laughs) Oh my gosh, this would have been a great Halloween animal because it's a pumpkin and it has a glowing skeleton. But I had to strike while the iron was hot. Everybody's talking about these pumpkin toadlets. Yeah, it makes uh, sense. Yeah, I had to talk about it now. So usually fluorescence is external. There's the only other vertebrate known to have this fluorescence on the inside of its body is chameleons. Um, so it's it's not very common. That's interesting. And they're certainly not related. So like, why? I wonder how long does that fluorescence happen after the frog dies? Like, oh. could you use this to find little skeletons on the forest floor? I, I can't imagine that it would be something that would require a biological process to maintain. I don't know. So I, I would I mean, have it, to guess that it would persist after. I mean, they found out with the wombats with taxidermied individuals in right. the museum. That had, I'm assuming, been long dead. Yeah. So I don't think it requires the animal to be alive to work. Interesting. Yeah, for sure. So there are some thoughts as to why they might have glowing bones. Okay. <laughs> um, one thought is that they, it might help with their aposematism. It might just be a visual cue to predators that can see in the uv range Mm -hmm. so things like spiders or birds like they might have vision in that range where they could see uv light it might also help them see and recognize each other like how some mantis shrimps will use like fluorescent signals that have like parts of their body that are fluorescent that they'll basically show to each other to communicate with each other Mm -hmm. because no other creatures in their area can see in that range. So they're basically sending like secret spy signals to each other, you know? <laughs> nice. If you ever, as a kid, used a pen with like that disappearing ink, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. I, I never personally had it, but I know what you're talking about. It's like that. So yeah, they may yeah, be yeah. like sending secret spy signals to each other. <laughs> we don't 100% know why they have fluorescent bones. It's just neat. Um, And by the way, the study that I got that from is called Intense Bone Fluorescence Reveals Hidden Patterns in Pumpkin Toadlets. And that was by Sandra Gut et al. in Scientific Reports in March of 2019. A final like little effectiveness point for the pumpkin toadlet is that like some other frogs we've talked about on this show before, they do have direct development, which means that they hatch out of the egg as a toad ready to go. Oh, okay. They don't hatch into a tadpole form, so they don't need to be like laid into water and then be a tadpole for a while before they come out as a toad. They have a tail when they hatch, but they were already tiny and then they hatch and they're just like an even tinier version of an already tiny thing. Nice. It's it's a toadlet lit. <laughs> it's so little. <laughs> uh, but so they don't have to have a tadpole, which I feel like makes them able to hide their eggs. And so they basically just like lay their egg on the ground. And that's kind of it. That's all they really need to do. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, that doesn't, then they're not as much of a risk of like being eaten by fish or stuff like that. So right. I think direct development helps them personally. Next category for the pumpkin toadlet is ingenuity. I'm going to give it what I 
believe is a generous five out of ten. Oh. So like other types of frogs, they do communicate with each other. They do these things called advertisement calls, which are these long, low buzzing sounds. It's not a croak or a ribbit like we would like expect to hear from a toad uh, or a frog. We hear frogs every night. They are deafening in the summer. We've been having a lot of storms recently, so our toads are going absolutely berserk. And these don't have that sort of like loud cry. It's really quiet and it's very low pitched. Really? Yeah. Um, They use it to kind of like advertise their presence, claim their territory, stuff like that. But I want you to think back to earlier when I mentioned that they have a very, very poorly developed ear, Uh inner ear. Unfortunately, their inner ear is so poorly developed that their range of hearing does not overlap with the frequency of their calls. Oh, no. So they, it is believed, we obviously can't ask them, but it is believed that they cannot hear their own calls. Like they're just screaming into the void <laughs> and they can't hear it. We can hear it, but they can't. Huh. So that makes you wonder, why are they doing it? Why are yeah. they still calling? Because, you know, like most frogs call, it's probably just like a leftover behavior. It's something they've always done and they just never really had a reason to stop doing it mm-hmm. other than it just being a vestigial behavior that like they still do it even though they don't really need to anymore. Some researchers think that they there might be visual cues given by the behavior. So when they're making this call, they're inflating their throat sac. You've seen frogs do this. Oh, where yeah, they go yeah, warm yeah. and they like inflate their throat sac really big, make this big bubble on their throat. And some researchers think that maybe that, that inflation of the throat sac, is what they're communicating with. That they're just seeing each other do that. And that's what they're communicating with, or Hmm. that it's more like the behavior of like pushing themselves up, which they have to get into this sort of posture to call. And like, it might be more of a visual communication at this point. And the sound isn't really even doing anything. All right. But they're making the sound because they just are inflating their throat sac. And so Hmm. obviously we can't like ask them what they're doing or why they're doing that. But this is uh, why researchers think they may still be doing that. That's cool. And that is from the paper, Evidence of Auditory Insensitivity to Vocalization Frequencies in Two Frogs. And that was by Sandra Goot et al., same researcher as the last one, in Scientific Reports in September of 2017. And just like a really quick, what I consider to be a very funny little line from the paper, playback of specific advertisement calls to male Brachycephalus patanga in the field did not yield any change in calling behavior or posture. N of eight, (laughs) figure S1. So they would take recordings of pumpkin toadlet calls and play them at a pumpkin toadlet to no response whatsoever. They'd be like, I don't, nothing, no response. All right, then. Yeah, which is kind of, you would expect that if they were actually hearing the sound, they would respond in some way to it, like maybe call back yeah, or change yeah. their posture or something, but nothing, just no thoughts. It's just a byproduct that they don't even know they're doing. I know, like they have no clue. Like, do they even know that they're making a sound? Like, I know <laughs> they can probably feel the vibration, but right. it's just kind of funny, I think. They are territorial towards other males. Uh, so if they, you know, come across each other in the same territory, they'll kind of, they'll like step to each other and like square up like they're gonna fight, but they usually don't. They usually are <laughs> able to kind of work it out And then after laying their eggs, the mama frog uses her back legs to roll them around in the soil and the leaf litter. And what she's doing is she's coating them. So she's coating her eggs in a layer of like dirt and dead leaves and stuff like that. It's like a uh, like a Katamari ball. 
Oh boy. You've ever played the Katamari games where you roll around and pick up like trash and debris and stuff? It's like that. (laughs) And so this is thought to serve a couple of purposes. One is to coat the egg and prevent it from drying out. So it makes a little bit of like a a layer of like moisture retention, but it also helps camouflage the egg. So Mm. it looks like just a clump of dirt on the ground that nobody would ever want to eat because it's definitely not a tasty frog egg. So I thought that was neat. That was an interesting, clever little behavior that she does to all... protect her baby. Of course, being a frog, then she's like, all right, my job here is done. And then she leaves. <laughs> Good so luck. She, that is the extent of her parental care. But it is something, <laughs> which is more than I can say for a lot of frogs. Yeah. That information I got from the paper, Breeding Behavior of the Pumpkin Toadlet Brachycephalus Ephipium. And that was by Jose Pombal, Ivan Sazima, and Celio Haddad in the Journal of Herpetology in December 1994. So that's an older paper. Sorry, but I'm sure it's still accurate. Um, And just a little quote that I wanted to pull from this paper because I found this funny. I don't know if anybody else finds this funny, but I do. A mirror placed in front of eight territorial males elicited visual displays and occasional attacks towards the reflected image and of two, but no vocalization. (laughs) That's funny. So if you put one of these frogs in front of a mirror, they will attack their reflection. They do not pass the mirror test of self-recognition. So I did have to uh, count that against them in ingenuity. If it makes you feel better, I've seen like fully grown peacocks do this. Peacocks have done this. Sandhill cranes do this. That's a little sneak peek at next week's episode. Yeah, it is. They're they're not the brightest. uh, I don't think. Mm. I don't think anyone's ever accused frogs of being particularly intelligent. Just poor frog. It's okay. Small. No thought. No room for thought. No room for thought. (laughs) (laughs) Only eat bug. Uh, finally, aesthetics for the pumpkin toadlet. It's got to be a 10 for this one. I mean, they're just... You got to like, give them something, right? Them something. <laughs> <laughs> they're so cute. Throw them a very small bone. A very tiny little glowing bone. <laughs> <laughs> they're so cute. They are tiny. Uh-huh. They are frogs. They are orange. I love everything about that. They're so, and they have like, they have this angry little grumpy face too. Like they're one of those frogs that has an angry looking face, but like their eyes are enormous compared to like the rest of their face. They have these big giant kawaii cartoon eyes. And then like (laughs) this little mouth that's like almost looks like a little smiley mouth almost. Gosh. Yeah. They're just really cute. They also have these like twiggy little arms that are, do not look correct at all for their body. It reminds me a little, like the arms remind me of in Spirited Away. Like when No Face eats a bunch of stuff and gets all big, but he's still got those weird arms and legs and stuff. Uh, and he's yeah. like crawling around on the walls and stuff. That's what it reminds me of. All right. Yeah. Little weirdos. Uh, so to wrap things up for the pumpkin toadlet, uh, their conservation status is, since there's a lot of different species, you know, like oh, they're true, kind true, of true. assessed, you know, as individual species. Um, the IUCN has, most of them are data deficient. Some of them are least concerned. But then just because they're data deficient doesn't mean they're doing good. There are a lot of threats to any wildlife that lives in rainforests, but also amphibians in particular are at high risk for things like chytrid fungus, which is causing like a huge biodiversity crisis among amphibians right now. Deforestation is a huge threat to pumpkin toadlets and other species of frogs that live in the forest. I mean, just think about how heavily they rely on the leaf litter on the ground. Um, They rely on high levels of moisture. They rely on warm temperature. So like they need a very sort of specific set of conditions to live in. 
And also they live in this this area called the Atlantic Forest. And it is often outshone, I suppose, by the Amazon rainforest, right? right? Like if you're thinking of a rainforest in Brazil, you're probably thinking of the Amazon rainforest. So that's kind of where mm-hmm. all of the conservation efforts get directed. So this poor little Atlantic forest really doesn't get any press or any hype or anything like that because people just, I think, don't know about it. I think it really, the the spotlight is is almost always on the Amazon, which I mean, reasonably so. The Amazon is enormous, but, mm-hmm. the, but the Atlantic rainforest is, is there too. So um, if you love the pumpkin toadlet and want to protect them at all costs, uh, you can check out the organization Copaiba, which is a Brazilian organization leading reforestation efforts in the Atlantic forest specifically. They're women-led, and you can check out more about the conservation of the forest and how you can help at copaiba.org.br. The website is in Portuguese, but if you use Google Chrome, you can do like an automatic translation thing where like they have like a browser extension that'll translate the page for you. I did that and I was able to read the website just fine. So you can still check out the website even if you don't speak Portuguese. It's a really cool organization. Um, They're doing really good work on the ground in an area that I think doesn't get a lot of PR. Until today, we're here to change that. Yes. Shining the spotlight on the Atlantic Forest. And that's the pumpkin toadlet. Well, thank you, babe. Thank you for sitting through my spiel. It's a good little teeny tiny glow in the dark frog. Oh, a little guy. He's just a little guy. (laughs) That's my assessment. Little guy out of 10. All right. Uh, Thank you so much to everybody who has listened here today. Um, I want to plug a few different podcasts that I'm on this week because I had a little bit of a frenzy this week where I recorded a ton of stuff last month that's like all dropping at the same time. Mm -hmm. So first of all, Pangolin, the conservation podcast. If you liked our Pangolin episode that I did with Jack Baker, I went on his podcast and I talked about Florida wildlife. And it's a two-part one where the first one went up this week and it's all just about the cool animals that live in Florida. Um, next part that's going to go up is about conservation in Florida. So if that stuff sounds cool to you and you liked our Pangolin episode, go check that out. I'll have a link to that in the show description. Another one is uh, Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, which is the podcast by Alex Schmidt, who is a comedy writer and four-time Jeopardy winner. All right. Yeah. Uh, we talked about manatees, which was really, really fun, along with uh, comedian Billy Wayne Davis. So I'll have a link to that. Um, in the episode description as well. Another one is the 10-ish podcast, which is a podcast that uh, goes over like lists of ranking stuff. And I joined uh, host Nick ML on that to talk about the top 10 most charismatic species of animals, which is a really, really fun episode that will go up on Wednesday. So I will put a link in the description as soon as it's available. If you liked what you heard today, I would love it if you could head over to your podcatcher. And if you're able to leave us a good rating and review, Uh, we got one very recently from Sarah Tonin 16. And that is Sarah, like Sarah, the name Sarah Tonin. Um, Yeah, who left just a really, really sweet review. Sarah Tonin says, Sometimes they cover animals I've never even heard of, but even the ones I'm familiar with, I always learn something. So very sweet review. Thank you for leaving that. Yeah, I really do read all those reviews and they make me really happy. Mm -hmm. 
You can come hang out with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We have a Discord server. I stream video games on Twitch. All that stuff will be linked in the description. Thank you, Maximum Fun, for having us on your network. We love you guys. We love your shows. Uh, go check out MaximumFun.org uh, to check out the other shows on the network. And thank you, Louis Zong, for our theme music. Thank you so much. It's a blessing. And that's all. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.